This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. It's the doctrine of the covenant which is uniquely Protestant Reformed and which gives our churches their right of existence as a separate denomination in the whole vast ecclesiastical world. No one can gainsay that. And so I want to take a look at that tonight as briefly, I'm afraid, but nevertheless, I hope that I can give you some appreciation of it. Having defined the covenant as a bond of friendship and fellowship between God and his people in Christ, There are two key words which I want to emphasize as I spell out some of the implications of that. And those two key words are church and revelation. I'm not going to say a whole lot about this right now, but we want to get around to the doctrine of the place of infants in the covenant, you see. And that has to do with the church. That's why I want to introduce it now. When I make this a key doctrine in the doctrine of the covenant and in an explanation of the doctrine of the covenant, what I mean is this, that the boundaries of the doctrine of the covenant, no, let me put that differently, the boundaries of the covenant people are identical to the boundaries of the church. Or even to put it a little bit stronger than that, the covenant of grace which is the heart and essence of salvation, is the grace of salvation which identifies the church as church. Why is the church a church? Because it is saved. That is, because God establishes his covenant with the church. Now that means, and here is the crucial point which I want to make right from the outset, that means that the deepest explanation for the origin of the church is the doctrine of election with its counterpart, reprobation, with its other side of the coin, so to speak. The church is the object of election. The covenant people are the objects of election that identifies the two. The parameters of membership in the church are identical with the parameters of the covenant of grace because of the decisive character of God's decree of election. That is, God elects a church and God elects a covenant people. That's virtually saying the same thing. I emphasize that because today, that's where the battle lines are drawn, right there. All of those who want to make, and this goes back to that tension in the the Reformed churches that existed since Dort, all of those who want to make of the covenant an agreement between God and man, do not want to connect election with the church or with the covenant. I, I, Mondays, I usually take my father out for lunch just so that he can get out a little while. And even though he's 94 years old, he likes to talk theology. And for some reason or another, he got on the subject of Skilder's visit to this country in 1947. And... He was telling me, well, I knew that, of course, Skilder had stayed at our home. He had stayed at our home in 1939, and he had stayed in our home in 1947. Well, I remember him vividly. But my father was telling me that when they were discussing, he and Skilder were discussing together the doctrine of the covenant, and my father introduced the concept of election into the doctrine of the covenant. Skilder was furious, literally. Then already, 1947, we may not, Skilder said, introduce the doctrine of of election when we're speaking of the covenant. Election is over there in eternity. The covenant is here and now in time and history. 
Election belongs to the hidden things. The covenant belongs to the revealed things. And then he used the Dutch expression. I'm not sure what the translation is, but the Dutch expression goes like this. When my father was describing the covenant view of the, of the Protestant Reformed churches, Skilder said in 1947, in our home, the parsonage in Manhattan, Montana, concerning that view, it kept the snur on. What does that mean, John? I guess maybe a, a, a kind of a, a, a loose translation would be that view makes me vomit, or that view makes me nauseous. Maybe that would is the idea. Mind you, the doctrine of election related to the covenant. He wanted no part of that. If you are acquainted at all with any of the writings of the liberated, even up until the present day, whenever they're talking about the doctrine of the covenant, they want nothing to do with the doctrine of election. There is no relationship between election and the doctrine of the covenant. They insist on that. Of course, of course, if the covenant is an agreement, how can you talk about election? We have to talk about election. Election is the heart of the gospel. It is determinative for the church and for the doctrine of the covenant. I say that now. I want to come back to that a little later. That means that this is true. Whether you're talking about the church as that church comes to historical manifestation in the world, and now I'm not talking about the Protestant Reformed churches only, our denomination, but the whole of Christendom, or whether you're talking about the covenant of grace in its historical manif uh, manifestation in the world. They are identical in their historical man manifestation, but election is the determinative principle. That is also true when the church is finally brought to glory and the covenant is realized in the full perfection of heaven. Election is the divine, irresistible power, and if I may use the language of the canons, source and fountain of the church and of the covenant of grace. So let's bear that in mind first of all. The second term that to me is important is this term. And the concept of revelation in Scripture, the more I think about these things and the more I, I ponder these truths, the more I find myself always going back to the doctrine of revelation. Not the book of revelation, you understand, the doctrine. I think that in the give and take of the classroom in the seminary when I'm trying to teach these young men to be good Protestant Reformed preachers who have a hold on Protestant Reformed doctrine, and we get involved in discussions and in debate and in questionings and so on and so forth, almost more than any other doctrine, I find myself going back to this doctrine of Revelation. It doesn't get that kind of emphasis in our thinking, and it doesn't get that kind of emphasis in our preaching. But more and more, I'm convinced that this is a key doctrine in Scripture, and that we would do well if we had a broader and more thorough understanding of it. The Scriptures have so much to say about it that you could spend a year just looking up the biblical passages and exegeting them that mention specifically Revelation. But be that as it may, what I'm saying now is this. That constituted a key doctrine too in the covenant. Why? Because when Huxma began his development of the covenant, he talked about the fact that the covenant which God established with his people in Christ was the revelation of the covenant as it exists in God's own triune covenant life between the three persons of the Holy Trinity. That was a characteristic of Huxima's theology anyway, as I try to point out in, in, in my book, For Thy Truth's Sake. Huxima was a, Huxima always began with God in his theologizing because he was convinced the scriptures do. So he began with God in his doctrine of the covenant. 
God is a covenant God in himself. What does that mean? That God makes an agreement with himself? That there is some kind of an agreement between the, the three persons of the Trinity? That's the traditional view of the, of the Pactum Salutis, Kuxima's first chapter in, in the uh, Locus on Soteriology in Reformed Dogmatics. Now, says, says Huxima, that's nonsense. God making an agreement between himself, and then usually, mind you, between the first and the second person, so that the Holy Spirit doesn't even have any part in it? No, says Huxima. How can you do that? How can God, the first and second person, agree together to do something when all God's ways are eternal and his counsel is eternal? Rather, the covenant as it is in God is a bond of fellowship and friendship in the Godhead because God is one in essence and three in person, which makes the relationship of friendship between the three persons in the one essence a relationship that is unique and infinitely blessed and rich and happy. God, the eternal God, not a dead, cold, abstract force, but a personal God, three in person, who enjoys himself and finds in himself the fullness of delight and blessedness and lives eternally in that friendship and fellowship of the Trinity. God chose to reveal that. That's the covenant, you see. God chose to reveal his own covenant life in himself. That's why you have a covenant of grace. Now, I happen to think, I happen to think that that's the most beautiful and most wonderful idea that you can possibly think of. That's the kind of a, that's the kind of a theology, that's the kind of a doctrine that well, I guess I, I guess I can say it. Sometimes there are things so beautiful. Sometimes you can have that in the creation. Things so beautiful that you are moved almost to the point of tears. Literally. It's so beautiful that you feel you could sit down and weep. That's this kind of a doctrine. God reveals the covenant life that he lives in himself. He reveals that through Christ, and he reveals that through Christ by taking his people into his own covenant fellowship. Now, that means all sorts of things. I guess the best way to, to explain that is to remind you that in the old dispensation, you had only a figure of that in the temple, where God dwelt in the Holy of Holies behind the veil and the people dwelt in the outer court beyond which they could not go. And between the people in the outer court and God in the Holy of Holies was the altar of burnt offering, the Aaronitic priesthood, the altar of incense, and the other trappings, the candlestick over here in this corner, and the table of showbread over here, and so on. And the veil. And so God and his people dwelt together in covenant fellowship. And the idea was, of course, that as God makes clear over and over again in the old dispensation, he does this because he dwells in one house with his people, under one roof. That's living together. A young man may date a girl, but when it's 20 minutes before curfew time, he takes her home, and then he goes home. Only when they're married do they live in the same house under one roof, and then the marriage is complete, and they live together in the relationship of marriage. That was the idea in the Old Testament, you see. God and his people in one house. But... It was the Old Testament, and the blood of atonement had not been shed. And so, although they dwelt in one house, they were kind of far apart from each other, you see. It was just like a, a man and a woman getting married, because Israel was God's bride. 
But the man lived on that end of the house and the woman on that end of the house. And, and there were three rooms in between with locked doors and neither the man nor the woman had the key. And you could say, you know, it's nice to live in the same house, isn't it? But it wasn't all that great after all if one is over there and the other over there. That's the way it was in the Old Testament. God was here and man and Israel was here. And that's why in Psalm 84, for example, you have that startling passage where David is jealous of the sparrows because the sparrows build a nest under the eaves of the most holy place and they can get closer to God than he can. He's envious of them. But it all looked ahead to another day. And so in John 2, you read of the fact that Christ tells the Jews, my authority to cleanse this temple is destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it up, because he spoke of the temple of his body. And his body was the temple of God, because in the first place, God dwelt in his body. Paul says that literally in Colossians 1.20. You can look it up. In him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily, says Paul. Bodily. The fullness of the Godhead in Christ bodily. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, says John. While He was on earth, you couldn't see that. That the human nature of Christ in the state of humiliation was sort of like that veil that obscured the, the, the divinity of Christ. But not now. Not now in heaven where Christ is exalted when you see Christ. God is revealed through Christ. That's one thing. On the other hand, the church, mind you, is the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12. So the Christ's body is the fullness of the Godhead and the church is the body. And so in Christ, in His body, glorified and exalted. God and His people come together as close as it's possible to come. Now, I don't have any idea of what that's like. Only heaven will reveal that. But there is something very real about that. Something, well, mystical in the good sense of the word. You know what, it, what, what our Heidelberg Catechism teaches about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. That's why the Lord's Supper is a wonderful sacrament. When we partake of the sacrament by faith, we really eat the flesh and drink the blood of Christ. Not in the Roman Catholic sense, says the catechism, but in this sense of the word. That we are more and more united to his blessed body in which dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's how close we are to God. So that when we are in Christ, we are in fellowship with God. Now, that fellowship that God reveals of His own covenant life by taking His people into it, is, you understand, not the kind of, of revelation where God simply tells us gives us some information about the blessedness of his own covenant life. But he takes us into the Trinity. I don't know how else to say it. Through Christ. Takes us into the family life that he lives in himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As the triune God manifests himself in Christ, by means of the Holy Spirit, for the Spirit is the one that unites us to Christ. I often use the illustration, and I think it's an accurate illustration. If a family with three children is walking down the streets of Chicago and finds in a slummy district a little girl who has been abandoned by everyone and who is only who has only rags for clothes and whose hair is filled with lice and whose body is covered with sores and who has a bloated belly because she hasn't had anything to eat. A waif, disease-ridden, 
And the family discusses among itself, shall we tell this little girl of how wonderful family life is? That doesn't mean a thing. If they sit down on the curb by this little girl and tell her about their own family life, but if they take her home and give her nice clothes and give her a bath and clean her hair and heal her wounds and tell her, you're one of the family from now on. This is your home. This is your brother. These are your sisters. And here's your bedroom. And that's your bed. And you may eat with us. And you may enjoy life with us as a family. That girl will say to herself, I can't believe this. I, it's it's got to be a dream. It's too good to be true. But as she lives in the family and then becomes an heir with the other children of all the father's possessions, she begins to understand what it's like to be a part of a family. That's how God reveals his covenant life to us. He doesn't tell us only about it. He does. But he takes his people into his own covenant life. We may know something of the blessedness of it, the joy of it, the happiness of it, the, the, the great wonder of it. It's yours, he says to us. I give it to you freely. You who are worse than a disease-ridden waif, I give it to you and I take you to my own family through Christ. That's the covenant. Revelation, that's the key. All right, any questions about that before we go on to the next point that I want to make? No one? Did I make it so clear or was it so obtuse, so hard to understand that you don't know what to say? All right, let's go on then. Now, the next point is a little bit more difficult. I don't know if it's more difficult, but it, it's going to connect all of this with the organic idea. You see, the problem is, you understand the problem, don't you? Problem is this, that, that covenant people that God chooses to be his own covenant people and to become a part of the organism of the body of Christ is in fact, historically, a part of the, of the organism of the human race that fell in Adam. That's the problem. And the big question is, how are you going to get the organism of the covenant out of the organism of the human race? That's the question. That's not so easy. We think that's easy, but it's not. There's a passage in 1 Peter. We ought to look at that a moment. I don't know, did I preach on that passage here in Hope? I don't think so. I preached on it in a few churches. 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. Judgment. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Now that word scarcely there means this. In the first place, it means that the salvation of the righteous is most, most difficult, bordering on the impossible. In fact, it's so difficult that the righteous barely get to heaven, barely make it, as it were. And indeed, as the verse says, the only possible way is through judgment. The time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. Not in the world, at the house of God. That same theme, although I want to come back to this passage in Peter, that same theme is stated in Isaiah. At the very beginning of Isaiah's prophecy, the burden of Isaiah's prophecy is, of course, the captivity that was still to come, and the horror of it. And in chapter 1, verse 27, the prophet explains why the captivity will have to take place. Zion shall be redeemed with judgment, 
and are converts with righteousness. The only way for Zion to be redeemed is with judgment. Now, the word judgment in Scripture has a variety of meanings, and let me briefly mention them so that this can become clear to you. In the first place, the word judgment means that act of God whereby he passes sentence upon all the deeds of men. That's judgment. Easy to understand. Every judge does that. A man appears before him. This is what you did. Is that good or is that bad? The judge will decide. God does that with all the acts of man. He judges whether they be good or bad. In the second place, the word judgment means either favorable sentence or unfavorable sentence. In Scripture, they can mean both. In fact, the law of God is sometimes called God's judgments. In Psalm 119, for example, the Scriptures are called God's judgments. Whether the sentence, whether the verdict of the judge be good or bad, it's still the judgment of the judge. In the third place, the sentence that is passed is the judgment. And in the fourth place, the execution of the sentence is the judgment of God. All of those terms, all of those ideas are implied in the word judgment. So God passes judgment upon the wicked and the righteous, upon the elect and the reprobate, upon the unbelieving and the faithful. He passes sentence upon them. And he executes that sentence as well. Now, there's one interesting aspect of this. And that is this. That judgment also means the outpouring of God's fury against sin. And the term often means that and is in fact the meaning in Isaiah 1.27 and is the meaning in 1 Peter 4. Judgment must begin in the house of God. God's fury against sin. Now that's understandable, of course, because here is the human race that has fallen in Adam. And God's judgment, his fury against sin, is poured out upon that human race because of its fall in Adam. And from every conceivable point of view, of course, that would be the end of the human race. But as we noticed last time, this organism of the human race is not the organism of God's eternal purpose. The organism of God's eternal purpose is the organism of the church or his covenant people. But that organism of the church or the covenant people is in this organism, fallen in this organism, in fact, and a part of this organism. And so the question is, how is this organism extracted from this organism? That's the question. The answer is through judgment. That's the only way. Through God's fury against sin. That's the only way that this organism can be extracted from, separated from this organism. The difference is this. That although all the fury of God against sin falls upon the human race, the cross intervenes as the cross of Christ, the head of the new organism. I don't have to repeat that. We talked about that last time. All the fury of the judgment of God against sin, therefore, is against the human race, but comes through the cross. All of it comes through the cross. But it comes through the cross in such a way that in the cross is accomplished election and reprobation. You have to bear that in mind, in the cross. That's why there were two thieves, one an elect and the other a reprobate. That's why before Jesus went to the cross, he says, now is the judgment of this world. 
Now is the prince of this world cast out. Election and reprobation is realized in the cross. How? Because Christ died as the head of the new organism of the church, of the elect. And the result of it is that although the judgments of God's fury against sin, against the reprobate too, come through the cross, the cross is the bearing of God's fury against sin for the elect. I, I don't want to go into that in, in detail tonight. I don't think that's necessary. But you understand, don't you, that the cross is the realization not only of election, but of reprobation too. And it's the accomplishment of reprobation because the one question that will be asked in the judgment day of everybody is simply this. What did you do with Christ? What did you do with Christ? That's the only question that will be asked. And only the elect will be able to say, we believed in him. And the reprobate will say, we rejected him. We hated him. The cross is the sovereign realization of double predestination. Because Christ died as the organic head of the church. And the result of it is that all of this fury of God against sin is changed by the cross into blessing for the elect. There's something very mysterious about that. I understand that it is changed into blessing for the elect because Christ bore their sins, paid for them, for them only. That's why if you have a universal cross, you don't have anything at all. You don't have anything. There, there can't be anything like a universal cross. Cross for everybody. Uh, we can understand that Christ went to hell in the place of his people, that he paid for their sins, that he merited for them all the blessedness of covenant fellowship with God and heaven and salvation and all the rest. But even though those that judgment of God through the cross is changed into blessing, it's still the judgment of God. I mean, when God in His fury pours out His judgments upon the world, He pours them out upon the elect as well as the reprobate. Tornadoes don't aren't partial to the houses of reprobates. Cancer isn't partial to unbelievers. Suffering and disease and sickness and pain doesn't belong only to those who reject the gospel. Those are all the judgments of God. Floods sweep away the homes of God's people as well as of the wicked. All judgments of God that he pours out upon the world. Judgment. Zion is redeemed with judgment. Judgment begins with the house of God. But because of the cross of Christ, who bore that judgment against sin for the elect, although that judgment comes upon the whole human race, it is the means that God uses to extract the real organism of eternal election from the organism of the human race. That's what Peter's talking about. We must not think that it's easy to save us. I'm not, I'm not talking now from the viewpoint of God's omnipotence. God's omnipotence, of course, is God's eternal power to accomplish whatever he purposes to do. I'm talking about it from our point of view. And that's Peter's perspective. We're scarcely saved. We're saved by the skin of our teeth. We barely make it. Why? Because it's so wretchedly hard to get us out of the human race. That's why. Here we are. We're a part of it. Our natures are totally depraved. And if you don't think it's hard to save you, then all you have to do is look at the fact that it took the cross to save you. The death of the Son of God it took to save you and to save me. And when the blessings of the cross are given to us, they can only come through judgments because we have to be rescued from that fallen, that organism of the fallen human race of which we are a part. And to rescue that organism takes 
a work that involves suffering and pain. Uh, I don't want to go into that either tonight, but Luther saw that. And he saw that very early in his Reformation work. I made a lecture on that in South Holland. And some of those things were just starting to come to some clarity in my mind when I made that lecture. I'd like to do that again sometime because it's a little clearer to me now. But Luther, Luther saw that the sufferings which we endure here in the world, whatever they may be, are a sharing in the suffering of Christ. In his Heidelberg uh, disputations, the, the propositions he drew up for the uh, disputation at Heidelberg, when was it? In, I think it was April, March or April of 1518. That was less than six months after he nailed the 95 Theses to the chapel door of Wittenberg. He talked about that. Talked about that, that sufferings are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And he meant by that, of course, persecution because Christ hung on the cross as the object of the hatred of the world, and we feel the measure of the suffering of Christ when we are persecuted. But he meant more than that. He meant that the judgment of God, when it comes upon Christ, for our sins comes also upon us through the cross, which judgment has the effect of tying us to Christ. It's always the fruit of judgment. I don't know, I'm not saying this very well probably, and I'm not sure I'm making it clear, but it's the application of the suffering of Christ through judgment so that we may be separated from the sinful human race of which we are part. When I was minister in Dune, Iowa, because I have, I have the farm in my blood, I worked on a farm from the time I was 10 years old till I went to college, or no, I don't know, 11th grade in high school, I guess. I got the farm in my blood, and I used to go to the farm a couple days during the summer. And I was on the farm of a farmer in Doom by the name of Henry Blankenspoor. Maybe some of you know him, and he had to repair his combine that day. And he said to me, crawl, on, crawl inside that combine because I'm going to do some hammering on the outside, and I want you in, in drilling, and I don't know what it was, but I want you on the inside. So I went in that beast and came to that unit in the combine which does the work of separating the grain from the tr uh, chaff, and I was appalled at what that, that unit was. The drum with holes in it where the wheat could fall out that turned rather slowly, but inside that drum and turning in the opposite direction was the meanest looking beater you ever saw that turned at, the, uh, at a tremendous speed and that beat the grain unmercifully because it was the only way to get the grain out of the chaff, get the grain separated from the wheat. The grain had to be battered and beaten by this brutal instrument Otherwise, you couldn't get it separated from the, 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 the straw. That's the way it is. We call that chastisement sometimes. That's what it is, chastisement. Judgment, chastisement is judgment to save. That's what it is. We're always being chastised. We have to be always chastised. If God would leave us on our own for a moment, we'd fall right back into our sins. He has to hang on for dear life to us. And he has to batter us and beat us and bruise us by all kinds of forms of suffering that we may be extracted from the human race, which involves extraction from our own human nature, you understand, which is depraved. That's the idea of Scripture through the cross. And that's the way the organism of the human uh, the true organism of election, of sovereign election, is finally extracted from the organism of the human race when it perishes. Scripture uses that figure. Psalm 1. Psalm 1. The keynote of the whole Psalter. Psalm 1. The wicked are scattered like the chaff. The righteous are gathered into the granary. But it's not easy. And that's why we suffer here in the world. And that explains it.
It's the only way we can be saved because we share the sufferings of Christ. All revelation is the revelation of the triune God, all revelation. Whether that's through the Bible or through the preaching or through scripture or through uh, creation, I don't care what it is. All revelation is the work of the triune God through Jesus Christ by means of the Spirit of Christ. That revelation is objective. It's an objective revelation bound up in Christ. Christ is himself, personally, the revelation of God. I thank thee, Father, Matthew 11, you know the passage. I thank thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Christ, Christ, objective revelation. As Christ is revealed, he is revealed as the one who makes known who and what God is. So revelation objectively in Christ is uh, propositional. It's ideas, it's thoughts, it's truths, it's doctrines. The Bible. So... Revelation is objectively a system of doctrine. Why? Well, because God is in himself the fullness of all truth revealed in Christ. That revelation is through the spirit of Christ because the world can't see that revelation. The world is spiritually blind as bats and the world will rebel against it always. So the spirit is necessary in order that that objective truth as it is revealed in Christ may be seen by the and learned and understood by the church through the Spirit who opens their understanding, makes them see and hear. Blessed are your ears, for they hear, Jesus says to his disciples when he's talking about parables, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are your ears, for they hear. Why? Because the Spirit has given them ears to hear. Spirit also hardens, by the way, Isaiah 6. Objectively, that's how revelation takes place. But, you see, and this is the, 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 uh, the wonderful part of it, the blessed part of it, when we come to know a body of truth which is embodied in Christ, then we don't just come to know a whole bunch of propositions and doctrines or even things about Christ and about God, but we come to know a person. I don't, the difference is this. You can read, for example, an autobiography, a biography, even an autobiography of a great man, a biography of Lincoln. And I, when I finish reading that biography, I know all kinds of things about Lincoln. I just finished reading a while ago a biography of uh, Lyndon Johnson. I know all kinds of things about him now. He was a crook. He was a, didn't have an honest hair in his head. He, he got into the office of president through chicanery reading. Okay, but I, I never knew Johnson. I can even read a biography of a living man. That isn't going to guarantee that I know the man. But when the Spirit reveals this body of truth, which is in Christ, and we come to know it, we come to know Christ himself, personally. We come to know him not only as one who is alive and one who is exalted in heaven and one who sits at God's right hand, but one who is my Christ, who died for me, who loves me, who is interested in one thing only, and that is to save me along with the church, and who did all he did for my sake. And when I know him, 
I know God. How does that take place? Through the Spirit who works in our hearts in such a way that we not only master a body of doctrine, but that we come to know Christ in whom all that doctrine is embodied. And that's the wonder of salvation. Any other questions? In the first place, on Pentecost, this, the Spirit was poured out on the church on earth and in heaven. The whole church received the Spirit. In the second place, that Spirit is the power of renewal. That Spirit is, well, to, to enjoy covenant fellowship with God is to live with Him. You know how Psalm 73 puts it in Psalter number 203. To live apart from God is death. To live in covenant fellowship with God is life. That's the Spirit who accomplishes that because the Spirit makes us the body of Christ and unites us to His body so that we become God's covenant people in heaven and on earth. But the Spirit, just as in the original creation, and you read about that in Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God brooded upon the face of the waters. So in the renewal of all things, the Spirit of Christ is the one who gives life to the creation, who preserves the creation, who maintains the creation, and who renews the creation, and will glorify the creation in the day of Christ, and unite the creation through the heart of man to Christ and through Christ to God. Thy Spirit, O God, makes life to abound. The earth is renewed and fruitful the ground. That's true now, but that will be true when all things are made new. That will be the work of the Spirit too. Christ through His Spirit. Is that, uh, does that touch on what you wanted? It's a nice point you make. If that's what you wanted, that's a nice point. And a point that it doesn't, doesn't get that much attention. I remember vividly, we were sitting in seminary one day and Huxuma was expounding on, on some aspect of the covenant. As I recall, it was on exactly this work of Christ and the Spirit of Christ. And he made this comment. It seems to me, many says, and you better pay attention to what I say, it seems to me that if there is to be further development in the doctrine of the covenant, it has got to be along the lines of the work of the Spirit. I never forgot that. Never had enough time to pay attention to it, though, I, I'm afraid. But we sing of it in the Psalter, but what does it mean to us when we sing it? Thy Spirit, O Lord, makes life to abound. The earth is renewed and fruitful the ground. That's the new creation. But the Spirit is always the source of all life. All life. From God. The living God. Anyone else? That's quite a thought. You ought to read Luther on that sometimes. When I first read Luther on it, and it dawned on me what Luther was saying, Luther's so profound, you know, that it doesn't always hit you right away what he's talking about. But when it began to dawn on me what he was saying, it kind of scared me. What did he call those sufferings? Anfechtung. You know any German? Anfechtung. That, that word, German word, is very close to the Dutch uh, tribulation, to the English tribulation. But that's why, Luther said, the sufferings which we are called to endure in this life, grievous, difficult, always have the effect in the elect child of God of bringing him closer to Christ, of uniting him more tightly to Christ. Suffering has that effect. It drives you to Christ, and it drives you into Christ, and it drives Christ into us. It always has that effect. That was the last point I wanted to get at. You can't have wheat without the straw, can you? You can't have kernels of corn without the stalk and the tassel. 
and the ears, the cob, and the shucks. So the reprobate are to the elect what the wheat, what the, what the uh, straw is to the wheat. And that's because there wouldn't be the organism of the human race in Christ, with Christ as its head, except as a part of the human race that had fallen in the first Adam. In other words, God purposed eternally to save the organism of the church in Christ, in Christ, through the first Adam and the fall of Adam into sin, because Christ means suffering and death on the cross for sin. And so the human race as a whole is necessary for the elect. The human race as a whole is no more important to God than the wheat, than the, than the, the straw is to a farmer. It's important. Can't have wheat without the straw. But when the wheat's gone, burn the straw. It's of no earthly good anymore. It served its purpose. When God pronounces his judgment on the elect, he pronounces them his judgment on Christ, and he says, his judgment is this. That's the wonder of justification. He looks at the church and he says, I don't see any sin. These people are righteous. There's no sin in them. They're worthy to live with me forever and ever. Luther had the expression, uh, how did it go? Justus simul peccator. Just at the same time, a sinner. It's a contradiction in terms. I am, at the same time, right now, a wretched sinner who is just before God, righteous before God. The judgment of God through the cross. Through the cross. But that righteousness that belongs to the elect through the cross is the righteousness of God. An attribute of his revealed through Christ and the cross given to the elect. Now, because that organism of the elect is saved out of the human race, you can, and is itself the true organism, God saves that organism in the line of generations. Have I got five minutes for this? The human race is born in the line of human, uh, of generations. Of course, beginning with Adam. God created all the angels in a moment. God created Adam and the human race came forth out of Adam. The human race is not the organism of God's purpose. That's the elect. But because the elect in Christ are the true organism, are the true human race, are the true world, God saves in the line of generations. It follows that that would be the case. Anyone who denies that doesn't have the foggiest notion of what the works of God are all about. The individualism of Arminianism just simply has no conception of that. If God is going to save the true human race, the wheat, then that's going to be in the line of generations. Otherwise, it's not the true human race, you see. Nothing is so easy to understand as the fact that God saves in the line of generations. In the historical manifestation of that, the church or the covenant, Christendom, the covenant as a whole, you get wheat and chaff, as the scriptures say. Wheat and chaff. The parable of the tares in the field. The field is the world, Jesus says. The tares are the children of the evil one. The wheat are the people of God. The vine brought out of Egypt. Psalm 80. Lord, why hast thou burned down thy vine? That was the nation of Israel. Well, because the vine had been a fruitless vine. Read Isaiah, Isaiah 3, no, 5. Powerful, powerful passage. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching this vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard and a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine. 
and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down, and so on and so forth. And then, verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression for righteousness, and behold, a cry. So the the vineyard was destroyed, brought to captivity in Babylon. Why? Zion is redeemed through judgment. The nation as a whole, the covenant people, the church is brought to Babylon in order that the, the wheat might be extracted from the grain. Now, because that's true, because, well, another passage I should mention, John 15. I am the vine, ye are the branches. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit is cut out. Notice, every branch in me that beareth not fruit. There are branches in Christ that don't bear fruit. They belong to the historical manifestation of the covenant that include elect and reprobate. In the covenant lines are elect and reprobate. Just as, and here is briefly the grounds for infant baptism then, just as the gospel is and must be preached promiscuously to the whole church, to the whole church world, to the whole of Christendom, and then to the ends of the earth, so in the church must the sacrament of baptism be performed. And the point is this, that as that covenant manifests itself in history, say, as a wheat field. We've been talking about that. The farmer deals with the whole wheat field. He doesn't deal just with the wheat. He can't. He can't. He plows the field. He irrigates the field. He fertilizes the field. Takes care of it as best he can. And up comes the wheat crop. And thorns and thistles, to use Jesus' parable of the of the tares in the field. He doesn't care about that straw. He doesn't care about those thorns and thistles. He cares only about the wheat, but he takes care of the whole field for the sake of the wheat. And so the gospel is preached and the sacrament of baptism is performed in the church in, in its historical manifestation here in the world. 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul reminds the Corinthians that all Israel was baptized in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the heavenly bread, which God caused to fall in the wilderness. All drank water out of the rock. But with many of them was not God well pleased. They were all baptized. They all received manna. They all received water out of the rock. Which rock is Christ, Paul says, because they're part of the field in which God works. But when he calls this field, my people, he calls it that because that's where his elect are, just as a farmer does. When a farmer shows you his cornfield, he says, this is my cornfield. And you say, well, man, I see thistles and I see pigweeds and I see all kinds of weeds in that field. Why do you call it a cornfield? Well, the farmer says, because I'm growing corn here. Calling corn, that's why I call it a cornfield. God calls this his church because he's gathering his church here, even though the wicked are mixed up in it. And that's why I like to picture the line of the covenant as being a river, say the Mississippi River as it makes its way from somewhere up in Minnesota to the Gulf of Mexico. Into that river come other rivers. Here comes the Missouri, that great 
river that has its origin in the Rockies in Montana. I used to live at the headwaters of the Missouri. Do you know that? Gallatin, Madison, and Jefferson rivers came together in three forks to form the Missouri. Here comes the Tennessee. All these other rivers come into the Mississippi. Now, this is the Missouri River. When it joins the Mississippi, do you call this river here half Missouri and half Mississippi? Of course you don't. You call this the Mississippi River. The Missouri loses its identity. Here's the Tennessee. You say, oh, from here on, this is the Mississippi, Missouri, Tennessee River. No, it's the Mississippi River. The Tennessee River loses its identity, and so on and so forth. At the same time, by no means does all of this water get to the delta around New Orleans and pour into the Gulf of Mexico. Water's taken out by the sun, by irrigation, by splashing out of the river, and so on and so forth. That's the covenant. This is the covenant. New generations are brought in from heathendom. They're no longer heathens when they're brought in the river. They become part of the church. Does that mean that every drop of this water gets to the Gulf? No. Does it mean that everyone flowing in the riverbed of the covenant gets to heaven? No. No, it doesn't mean that. All kinds of those that are for a part of a time, part of the historical manifestation of the covenant, because of election and reprobation, are taken out and fall away. Branches are cut off. The straw is burned. Scripture is full of that idea. But nevertheless, there's the church. And the church is being extracted from that fallen human race. The elect are in the line of generations as the true human race, the human race of election, the human race of the eternal purpose of God. And that church is taken through Christ, through terrible suffering, into everlasting glory, where God's covenant will be perfected because all sin will be taken away. And that's what John has in mind. When in Revelation 21 he writes, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adored, adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. That's the description of the covenant in Scripture. And he will dwell with them. and They shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. That's the perfection of the covenant, a fitting close for revelation and a fitting close for us. So with that, thanks for coming and thanks for your attention. Can we sing a song? Let's sing, uh, let's sing 203, shall we? I don't know what verses they're saying. One and two, surely. Three. Shoot, they're all nice, aren't they, Dale? Let's sing one, two, three, and five.
pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank Thee for these weeks we have had together. We thank Thee for the inspiration we have received through Thy word from them. We thank Thee, Lord, for Thy great everlasting covenant of grace established with us and with our children. What a glorious doctrine, what a glorious heritage, what a glorious salvation Thou hast given to us. The half has not been told us. We can only marvel. We can only in wonder and awe give praise and glory unto Thee, the living God, the triune covenant God, who has dealt so wondrously with us poor sinners. How great are Thy works! If some of the greatness of thy works and some of the glory of thy works have captured our hearts, may we also in our lives live lives that are to the praise and glory of thy most holy name. This is the heritage thou hast given to us as Protestant Reformed churches. This is why thou hast formed us as a denomination. This is why we have a calling in the world this is why we are called to be faithful to that heritage which our fathers have entrusted to our care. This alone gives us reason for existence. Preserve us, O God, in that truth, and grant that we may teach it to our children, and that they may carry that truth with them. Till the Lord comes back, and until all thy elect are saved, and until thy covenant is realized, in all of its perfection and blessedness, in glory, world without end. Forgive, Lord, our sins. They are many. We always sin in everything we do. Pardon them. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations. Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day Sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.